Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Our next uh, presentation will be on management of trauma uh, related hemorrhage in patients on DOACs, and everyone in the audience who's a uh, an emergency physician takes care of trauma in some way, shape, or form. Some at a level one trauma center, some in a community hospital, some in a critical access hospital. So this is obviously important information. Uh, Dr. Babak Sarani uh, is uh, a surgeon, professor of uh, surgery, and as I said before, emergency medicine, which I really feel collaboration. And I understand from my colleagues at George Washington that he, like Dr. Cash, appreciates emergency medicine. And so he is at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and uh, we really appreciate you being here. Dr. Sarani? Well, good morning. Um, thank you, as always, Dr. Gibbler, and thanks for everyone showing up so early. If there's ever an honorary title with no skills behind it, it's me being a professor of emergency medicine. But uh, it's something that I really do like to say to people. So thank you. Um, let's just jump into the uh, meat of the matter so we can have some time for conversation. I'm going to end with uh, two uh, case scenarios, each of which were my patients, actually. So we'll give you some real-life examples of, of things that we did. Let's start with the concept of damage control. For those of you who may work in a level one or a level two trauma center, you'll hear the surgeons using these words regularly. This is a picture of the USS Cole after it was bombed in the port of Yemen uh, by now uh, 15, 17 or so years ago. The concept of damage control came from the United States Navy where you have a ship that's been severely damaged, is taking on water. This is kind of like a human who's now bleeding to death. We're not going to try to fix the ship because the people are going to come and bomb us again. We need to get out of Dodge. Um, So we're just going to plug the hole. And this is truly what the Navy does to get the ship out of uh, hostile waters to someplace safe. The concept of damage control and the human body is very much the same thing, is I cannot spend, I should not spend all the time in the world in the operating room trying to fix every last thing to watch the person die of physiologic collapse. What I need to do is just make the bleeding stop and then let the person kind of replete their physiologic stores. We'll go back and fix them again later on when the ship is in Norfolk or the patient is in the ICU. So it starts with hemorrhage control, and then goes to contamination control that we're not going to talk about. That's like uh, poop coming out of you because you got gunshot to the colon. But this assumes that you have an inherently normal coagulation system. Or maybe you have trauma-induced coagulopathy, which we can fix with a massive transfusion. It does not talk about what if I've got a pharmacologic inhibitor on board. What if the patient is on a DOAC? This is a study that, that is now somewhat dated, but still very relevant from uh, Denver. And they looked at patients who were not on DOACs. These are people who were very severely injured. And they measured the INR on arrival to the intensive care unit. So on the x-axis, you have the INR on arrival to ICU. On the y-axis, you have probability of death. And you can see, I mean, it's rare in medicine to see a linear relationship between anything. But there's a distinct linear relationship between the INR on arrival to the unit and death following severe injury. So it is imperative that we think of coagulopathy up front and address it up front, which is really the basis for massive transfusion protocols that I think pretty much all of our hospitals to some degree have, maybe not the critical access facilities. This is another uh, study that was published by one of my former partners before he became my partner. Jim Dunn is one of the authors on this paper. This is our own soldiers wounded in the Iraq-Afghanistan experience early in the war. And they, so these are all young, otherwise healthy Marines, soldiers, airmen, sailors. 
And they looked and said, okay, look, you've been severely injured, whether it was an IED or gunshot wound, what have you. How much plasma did you get for the amount of RBC? As that ratio closes and approaches a one-to-one resuscitation, you see a dramatic drop, a truly, I say to you, dramatic drop in hemorrhagic death. About a 60% absolute risk reduction. You guys, if you don't give an aspirin here, I'm going to say things I don't even know anything about. I got a feeling if you don't give an aspirin, chew and swallow for a STEMI like the cardiology guys will lose their mind and report you. My friend, you have about a 2% mortality benefit when you do that. I'm talking about a 60% drop. So this is crazy just by giving more yellow. But again, the point here is the person has an inherently normal coagulation system. They just need to be repleted. What if they don't? What if you have that elderly individual who is on rivaroxaban or apixaban, something to that effect? Well, do I need to reverse this person? And these are the questions that you need to ask. And this is what we, how we approach it. Are they on a drug? Yes or no. What drug are they on? And then most importantly, perhaps, when was the last time they took the drug? If the drug was taken more than about 15 or so hours ago, it probably is not as relevant to us in the trauma community as you would think. But certainly if it's less than 15 hours, less than 12 hours, absolutely less than 10 hours, we are going to want to know that and and perhaps uh, act on that. Second one is, what's the metabolism of the drug? Is this person showing up with AKI? Remember, generally speaking, these are elderly patients with comorbid conditions. They show up with a creatinine of 2.5. I'm going to make the assumption that the half-life of that drug just extended uh, much more so. And so that 10, 15-hour rule may not apply. The problem is it becomes qualitative medicine really quickly because there's no way to measure what's actually happening. And then Natalie kind of talked a little bit about the uh, location and severity of the bleed, and I totally agree with that. A bleed in the brain, a little subdural, a little subarachnoid, very different animal than someone who's bleeding extracorporeally or maybe from their extremity. I can put up a tourniquet and stop the bleeding easily. I might be able to ride out a hepatic bleed. Intracranial bleed doesn't give me much room to negotiate, and so she's totally right. So where is the bleed located? How severe is the bleed? These are the factors you have to take into account. And then I think we can talk about this in the Q&A, which is, okay, well, what do I do about it? If you're in a level one trauma center and you have index and alpha and you have K-Centra and you have all the good stuff, yes, we should do what uh, Dr. Cash mentioned in that evidence-based approach, give the antidote. But if you don't have that drug, now what do you do? And I think we can talk about some of that. Some guidelines we can kind of try to go by. The first one just reiterates what I just said. Where is the bleed? How severe is the bleed? And then the third point is, what drug do I give? At least in this um, consensus guideline, they recommended Andexanet Alpha for uh, 10A reversal. Uh, but they gave us the option of four-factor PCC if you do not have for uh, indexinate alpha, or if because of your own protocol, you're not supposed to use it. As an example, at George Washington, if someone has taken a 10A inhibitor more than 15 hours out, they will not get indexinate reversal, period. They will, however, get PCC because we don't want to just stand there and look at them. And I want to talk to you in two seconds here about is that a good idea? And here you go. Here's your two seconds. This is, this is hot off the press. So this is, you guys are going to get some inside information that others don't know. This was presented in abstract form about a year and a half ago. It's currently undergoing the publication process through the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. This is the biggest study of its kind. This was a multi-center retrospective study looking to ask is PCC, four-factor PCC specifically, it's four-factor PCC non-inferior to indexinate alpha for reversal of 10As in patients who took that drug within 12 hours, so they have drug on board, and are either in hemorrhagic shock or have a severe intracranial bleed due to trauma. So this was like a very specific question we asked, and we got appropriate powered, it's appropriately powered, it meets all the endpoints, 
273 patients, 77 got a four-factor PCC, 186 got indexinet. And the bottom line is it appears that four-factor PCC is non-inferior to indexinet. Specifically, this study does not say that, that PCC is superior, does not say that. It just says it's non-inferior. So what I take away from this study is, look, if you don't have indexinet alpha, or if your protocol says this person is too many hours out uh, and I'm not going to give you indexinet alpha, at least give them the four-factor PCC. At worst, it can't hurt. At best, it may help. That's what this study says. Do not just stand there and look at these people. You do have options. So questions, can I use PCC in lieu of index and alpha? We just talked about that. Is the dark rebound after the infusion is, is stopped? I think um, Dr. Kreitzer showed you that graph that shows the drug comes back. The anti activity goes up um, once you stop the infusion. Now, does that matter? I think you need to watch the patient carefully to look for signs of re-bleed. The studies would say it does not matter, that if you were to give index at once, you reverse the clot forms. Clot will not dissolve and go away. You should be okay. But please be aware of the fact that there is this concern about drug rebound. Do I wait and see what happens? I think we all said don't do that. By the time the train has left the yard, the train has left the yard. And I think we're better off stopping the bleed, stopping the ongoing um, uh, hematoma expansion than, than staying and seeing what happens. And is VTE risk higher than PCC, than A, because PCC presumably is factor, whereas AA and dexinet alpha is not really a procoagulant. It's an anti-anticoagulant, if you will. I th- I, my personal gestalt is I don't think that's true, especially if you restart the anticoagulation in a timely fashion. But, you know, the, the, the jury remains out on those questions. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine Office of Continuing Medical Education, EMCREG International, and Total CME Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.